Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Amos, From Personal Piety to Social Justice. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 18, 2010. What do the war in Iraq the collapse of the housing and financial markets in 2008, and the largest oil spill in history down in Louisiana, all have in common. They all illustrate the power of large institutions to do great harm. They demonstrate how governments can destroy society, how complex financial institutions can exploit and ruin the lives of everyday people and how a multinational corporation can despoil the environment in an unprecedented way. In many Christian traditions, the notion of sin has been reduced to the personal and the private. This partly explains our voyeuristic impulse when a person's faults are exposed to the public. We think of sin as the failure of a single individual's free will choices, or maybe a result of moral weakness. Sometimes, for example, we hear cradle Catholics joke about, or possibly lament, their guilt complex. We should never trivialize personal sin, as some people do when they joke about the seven deadly sins. Consider for a moment how horribly personal greed corrupted the ruthless oil prospector Daniel Plainview in the film, There Will Be Blood. The last few minutes of that film are very hard to watch. Nevertheless, although consideration of the personal and the private is always necessary, by itself it's not sufficient. The prophet Amos for this week broadens the concept of sin beyond the single individual to include corporate institutions. He shows that God cares not only about the private lives of individual people, but also about the moral actions of institutional systems. Personal piety is important to God, but social justice is perhaps even more so. Only large institutions with complex bureaucracies and vast resources, national government, Wall Street banks, or British Petroleum. Only they can slaughter millions, manipulate global markets, and ravage the planet while privatizing profits and socializing risks. Amos wrote 2,800 years ago, but reading him feels like a blast of cold, clean air. He lived during the reign of the renowned King Jeroboam II, who reigned for 41 years and forged a political dynasty characterized by territorial expansion, aggressive militarism, and unprecedented national prosperity. The citizens of his day took patriotic pride in their religiosity, their history as God's favored people, their military conquests, their economic affluence, and their political security. The very first page of Amos shows how in the Bible, prophecy is more about forth God's word to contemporary society 
then about foretelling the future. He starts off with a crowd-pleasing foreign policy briefing that would have made his fellow citizens cheer and jeer. His affidavit charges Israel's enemies with horrific war crimes. Amos might have been a small-town farmer, but he had a fertile imagination and a lethal pen. We read that Damascus threshed Gilead with sledges of iron teeth. Gaza took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. Tyre sold their prisoners of war into slavery and flaunted international treaties. Edom stifled all compassion and pursued its enemies with unchecked rage. Ammon ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend its borders. And Moab burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. Amos's audience would have smugly applauded this denunciation of atrocities, mutilation, scorched earth campaigns, slavery, depopulation, ethnic cleansing, global treachery, torture, and the flagrant degradation of your victims. They thought they were different, above such crimes against humanity. But then Amos pivots from Israel's enemies to his own nation. And just like in the gospel for this week about the Good Samaritan, the self-righteous insider experiences a very rude reversal. Israel had overplayed its hand. They misread the signs of the times. Convinced of the nobility of their own nation and the inferiority of, and the inferiority of foreigners, they found it impossible to understand how other people saw them. They considered their country superior in every way to the axis of evil that Amos had just denounced. Under Jeroboam, Israel developed an exaggerated sense of exceptionalism, which they invoked to exempt themselves from universal standards that applied to their own nation as well as to their enemies. Like the minority report of an alternate news source, Amos spoke to their national delusions. He was the classic outsider who preached from the unpatriotic fringe. He was blue-collar rather than blue-blooded. He was neither a prophet or even the son of a prophet, but instead a farmer from Tekoa, about 12 miles southeast of Jerusalem and five miles south of Bethlehem. The cultured elite of his day despised Amos as a redneck. He was an unwelcome outsider, too. Born in the southern kingdom of Judah, God called him to thunder a prophetic word to the northern kingdom of Israel. Amos's prophecy delivers a withering critique of Israel's entire culture. He describes how the rich trampled the poor. He says the affluent flaunted their expensive lotions, elaborate music, and vacation home with beds of inlaid ivory. Fathers and sons abused the same temple prostitute. Corrupt judges sold justice to the highest bidder. Predatory lenders exploited vulnerable families. 
And on top of it all, religious leaders pronounced God's blessing on all of it. With Israel at the peak of its power and having good reasons to believe that no disaster could befall it, Amos preached a counterintuitive and a culturally subversive message. To the country's disbelief, he said that Israel was no different than the pagan nations with their war crimes. Before God, they were equals. He spoke to average citizens in general, but especially to the nation's leaders in particular, priests, judges, financiers, and state bureaucrats. In 6.1, he calls them the notable men of the foremost nation. And in this week's reading, in chapter 8, verse 1, Amos compared Israel to a basket of summer fruit that was not merely ripe, but rather close to rotten. I imagine that very few people listened to Amos. In a paroxysm of rage and in defense of Jeroboam, Amaziah the priest ran him out of town. Still, Amos announced the end of Israel's empire. That end came quickly, too, for in the year 725 B.C., the Assyrian king Shalmaneser occupied Israel for three years, crushed the opposition holdouts, and then deported its populations. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 17. In 25 years, Israel went from being a regional power under Jeroboam II to a failed state under Shalmaneser. I recently bought Amnesty International's 2010 annual report on the state of the world's human rights. It documents abuses in 159 countries and shows how powerful governments block advances in international justice by standing above the law on human rights, shield allies from criticism, and act only when it's politically convenient. The study also reports on progress made. In South America, for example, several trials of previous heads of state for human rights violations took place under national legislation. And in Peru, the former president, Alberto Fujimori, was even sentenced to 25 years imprisonment for grave human rights violations in 1991. The report details the responsibilities that institutional actors have in the areas of torture, freedom of expression, prisoners of conscience, unfair detention and trials, and discriminations of all sorts. The report reminded me of Amos' message to ancient Israel, that it's one thing when a single individual defrauds his neighbor, but quite another when a government exterminates an entire people or a multinational company destabilizes global markets. God cares about the latter as well as the former. And now for further reflection. Who might the notable men of the foremost nation be today? Amos chapter 6, verse 1. Contemplate Psalm 52, verse 7 from this week about the collusion of power, wealth, and violence. Psalm 52, 7 reads, 
He trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. Consider this week's epistle in Colossians 1, 15 to 28, that God not only created all things, but that he intends to reconcile all things through making peace in Jesus. And for books this week, I review Harvey Cox, The Future of Faith. New York, Harper One, 2009, 245 pages. Harvey Cox, born in 1929, is the Hollis Professor of Divinity Emeritus at Harvard, where he taught from 1965 until his retirement in 2009. This book was published in conjunction with his retirement. With more than 50 years of study, travel, and writing behind him, Harvey Cox turns to consider the future of faith. Religion in general is enjoying a resurgence all over the world, he says. He also believes that fundamentalism is dying. But most important of all, he senses what he calls a profound change in the basic nature of religiousness. Today we witness a return to the imminent or the hor what he calls horizontal transcendence. Existential faith rather than dogmatic belief is a change for the good, according to Cox, and this is the theme of the entire book. Cox drives a very deep wedge between faith in and faith about, between personal trust and institutional creeds. Sketching out a grand schematic, the kind that historians deplore, Cox says that Christianity has lived through three great ages. First was the original age of faith, vibrant and authentic, but also gone forever. Next came the very long age of belief, and Cox can't say enough bad about it. This was the age of forced creedal conformity, imperial power, clerical hierarchy, what he calls the literalization of the symbolic, and the lust for empire. In this view, creeds are toxic. They could even be thought of as symptoms of a long psychological disorder. Today, then, we've entered the third age of the spirit, says Cox, and return to something more like the vibrancy of the golden apostolic age. I appreciated Cox's chapter on what happened under the Emperor Constantine. In mere belief about God or the gospel is surely no substitute for existential trust in God. But it's impossible to separate the faith with which we believe, a verb, from the faith which we believe, a noun. What is the object or content of the act of faith, if not something expressed in creeds, doctrines, and propositions. Cox downplays the centrality of dogma in creed in other traditions and romanticizes Christians in the global south who are oftentimes even more hierarchical and dogmatic than the rich white north. 
Undergirding his disdain for doctrine is the hint that it's impossible to be wrong in religion, and that the only thing that matters is sincere trust. I kept hoping that Cox might embrace the medieval affirmation of propositional knowledge, intellectual assent, and personal trust, all three of which are necessary for full faith. But that is not what he foresees in the future of religion. The author is Harvey Cox. The title of the book, The Future of Faith. For film this week, we, we review The Pursuit of Happiness, 2006. And happiness is spelled H-A-P-P-Y-N-E-S-S. So no, that's not a misspelling in the title. The broken English on the sign at his son's daycare is only one of the many things broken in Chris Gardner's life. It's no wonder that he tries to decipher the Rubik's Cube while his angry wife tries to talk to him. He's behind on the rent, overdue on his taxes, and earnest but inept at selling an overpriced gizmo called a bone density scanner. So his wife leaves him, but he keeps his son, and together they hold on for dear life in a church basement, a locked bathroom, and then in a no-tell motel. But there was never any surprise where this movie was headed. Chris Gardner, played by Will Smith, gets an unpaid internship at a brokerage house, and I'll leave it to your imagination to guess which intern they select for the only job opening. Jaden Smith, Will's real-life son, stars as Chris's five-year-old boy and gets kudos for cuteness. This was a feel-good film for Friday Night Fluff, in nice scenery of San Francisco, but not much more. The title of the film, The Pursuit of Happiness, from the year 2006. And finally this week, we continue our series of poems by John Berryman. John Berryman lived from 1914 to 1972 and published a long poem called Eleven Addresses to the Lord. This week we, we post 11, uh, the Address to the Lord number 8, which is sometimes called A Prayer for the Self. John Berryman, 11 Addresses to the Lord, number 8. Who am I, worthless, that you spent such pains, and take may pains again? I do not understand, but I believe. Jonquils respond with wit to the teasing breeze. Induct me down my secrets. Stiffen this heart to stand their horrifying cries. O oh, cushion the first, the second shocks. Will to a halt in midair their demons who would be at me. May fade before sweet morning on sweet morning. I wake my dreams, my fan mail go astray, and do me little goods I have not thought of.
ingenious and beneficial father. Ease in their passing, my beloved friends. All others, too, I have cared for in a traveling life. Anyone, anywhere, indeed. Lift up sober truth, a scared self-estimate. John Berryman, 11 Addresses to the Lord, number 8. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 18th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.